Welcome, friends. I am Dr. Suzanne Nixon, a mental health professional, meditation teacher, and the creator of Quiet Waters Podcast. This platform brings together mental health, psychology, mindfulness, and meditation to support and inspire you in your quest for well-being. According to philosopher Joseph Campbell, author of The Hero's Journey, there are times in our life when we may wonder, may question, or may give deep thought as to the value, merit, and significance of what we are doing. The question may inspire us to heed the inner call and embark on a path of adventure. Dr. Elliot Dasher received the inner call in 1996. Board certified in internal medicine, he has been a practicing physician, a physician administrator, and the director of wellness and promotion services at the Mid-Atlantic Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System for over 21 years. Dr. Dasha knew the traditional medical practice of care, treat the symptoms, and prescribe medication. It's an effective approach for acute illness and acute trauma, yet limited in scope for treating people with autoimmune diseases and chronic illnesses. He decided to leave his medical position and embark on an in-depth study of the principles and practices of consciousness and health. Packing his bags, Dr. Dasha took to the road and traveled to India to learn and experience the wisdom health practices of the East. His perspective on health and illness and his approach to treatment and care shifted and set him on a new trajectory. Embracing an integrative medical model and healthcare approach, he wove together the best practices of conventional medicine with the ancient wisdom of Eastern health philosophies, principles, and practices for whole health. Now, 25 years later, he is known for his expertise in meditation, is a popular meditation teacher on Insight Timer, and has authored two books, Aware, Awake, Alive, and his new book is At Press, Meditation and Beyond. Welcome, Elliot. Nice to be with you, Suzanne, and uh, lovely to share this time with you and with your visitors. Yes, it is a pleasure to have you, and thank you for making the time to be on this platform today. So, Elliot, I met you 30 years ago when you were working as the Director of Wellness and Health Promotion at Kaiser Permanente. And since then, you've been on an amazing inner and outer journey. Can you share with our listeners first what your life was like as a physician prior to when you embarked on your journey to India in 1996? Well, I went to a rather traditional medical education, as we all do, uh, internship and residency, and then began a private practice. The practice initially was with Kaiser Permanente for 10 years, and the second 10 years, I had my own private practice. 
There are many things that stand out. The joy of being able to to be intimate with clients and patients and get to know people, help them with their problems, sometimes successfully, sometimes less so. But uh, there is a real joy in being able to be with people one-to-one and talk about the most important and vulnerable issues in life. So I think that was the overall sense. It was not long into that period of time that it became obvious to me that something was not quite uh, completely there. I would see patients with uh, some serious illnesses, cancer, heart disease, and so on, or even more minor illnesses. And we would diagnose it and prescribe the appropriate tests and the appropriate therapeutics, and then we'd let them go. But it seemed to me always that there was something being missed. Here were people in the most vulnerable period of their life, when they were sick, when they were ill. Time became free and available. You could ask anything of them in terms of practices, and they would be more than willing to do it. So you had a person who was at a very teachable moment, particularly if the disease was a significant one. And yet you took that moment, instead of stepping in and being able to talk about some of the underlying preconditions for illness, stress, distress, dissatisfaction with life, poor relationships, some of those things that make up the core essence of what drives an illness to become clinical, we don't really ask those questions. So people go back to the same lives that they've lived and have the same risks that they had before. Now, largely, I didn't ask those questions, Suzanne, because I didn't know what to do with mm-hmm. the answers. Uh, what would I do? Somebody yeah. told me about stress or poor relationship or dissatisfaction with life or boredom or doubt or a negative self-image. I didn't have any training for that, mm-hmm. any, any ideas how to approach it. Mm-hmm. So I began to expand my practice during that period of time to consider a variety of other alternative approaches. And all that occurred before I took the big step in going to India. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just love what you're saying is that often the traditional medical practice doesn't go beyond the the standard tests and the standard therapeutics. And then the physician is left, even when you have that intimate conversation, when the patient is talking about, you know, their relationship that's gone south, or they're talking about the stresses of then what does the average physician do? Or even are they aware of the nutritional impact of of how that's feeding into some of these diseases? So your curiosity, I mean, you're not knowing, and then your curiosity led you to pack those bags. Was there a pivotal moment, like one client or a series of clients that you said, yeah, I need to go east now? The pivotal moment was when my youngest child finished college (laughs) and my my householding chores were done. Uh So I had a flexibility and a freedom. And I had the recognition that I had achieved all and more than I had ever planned on in life. And I needed to raise a victory flag and let go of what wasn't still working for me. Because I didn't find that I had a great deal of happiness in life, a great deal of peace. And I felt it was something far more. We all have that kind of uh, nagging urge that says there's more to life. There's got to be something else. And so I think that and the recognition that I had not completed my own healing, less that of others, taught me that it was time to make some kind of a change. And the change wasn't really to go to India, actually. The change was to take time off from practice. Because when I read all the great books, 
Joseph Campbell's being some of them, as you mentioned his name before, they all say the issue is when you have a transitional change, is not so much jumping into something new, but jumping out of everything you've been in, and leaving an empty space, complete place of clarity. So arising from the inside naturally will come to you spontaneously and naturally when the time is right, what it is you're meant to do next. So I took the time to follow that ancient tradition and left my practice and went off to a summer home that I had for many years and decided to just sit quietly for a couple of years until the next issue arose and inform me about what was next. Otherwise, I would have been kind of rearranging furniture in the same room. Yeah, I'd go half time or quarter time or rent a room in a house to make up the extra lost income with this, that. I wouldn't really be stepping through a new door. And so that's what really happened when I left. The timing was right. My financial needs were less. And it was time for me to really take the next step. But I didn't know what that was except to give myself the space for that learning or that wisdom to arise spontaneously. That is so beautiful because rarely do people honor the need for space and then take the time for space and just hang out there to see what comes and what arises next. So it's such a wise gift you you gave yourself to have that space. And so you were brilliant to give yourself this space, the space to just incubate and to, you know, be with the experience of, you know, what is arising within me. And after that space of time, you decided to travel to India. So what what spurred you to go to India? What was the impetus? And then when you went there, where did you go? Who did you meet? What inspired your heart? What what kind of took your breath away? Well, as I said before, it was during this period of time where I was just sitting around the so-called doing nothing, which is actually doing a lot. It's cultivating a wisdom inside that I worked for two winters at the Institute of Noetic Science in California. And one winter I roomed with uh um, Amika Swami, written a number of books. He's a physicist at Eugene, a University of Oregon at Eugene. And we would talk every night and chat because you shared the same house. And one day he said he'd gotten remarried. He was going to visit his in-laws in Bangalore in India. Why don't I come and he'd give me a soft landing? So I said, why not? I don't have anything else to do. That's how it came up, unexpectedly. Mm. It took about a year and a half. And I would never have planned or thought I was to go to India. But just sitting quietly enough, life instructed me what to do next. And so I took off on this first trip in which I visited many of the holy sites in India, Buddhist and Hindu. And it was when I got up to Dharamsala, which is where the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile is and the Tibetan people are, that I began to see on the face of the Tibetans I met, not only the Dalai Lama, but others, a sense of peace and joy, wisdom, of caring, of patience, something really, really special. I said, that's really what I want. That's what I've been looking for. Again, another instruction that came without any planning. And so I figured they've got it. I may as well go back and find out how they did it. So I spent three to six months a year for the next 12 years, going back to India and then part of it in Nepal, studying uh, Eastern philosophy, psychology, and meditation practices. This was my healing journey 
to understand more about the nature of spirit, nature of the mind, and nature of life, and to provide the kind of space that will continue to give me the clarity I needed to know what came next. So that's how I got to India, and that's what I did in India for those period of time. Well, I didn't know that you had gone uh, for a period of about 12 years. We'd go, you'd go back every, you know, for three months or six months. Again, I want to keep on saying what a gift that you were able to give yourself to have those experiences and to do these in-depth studies to learn about yourself and to learn about how to bring health practices, you know, back to the U.S. I'm struck by what you said, Elliot, about looking at their faces and the Buddhists or the Hindu faces and seeing their peace, their joy, their wisdom. Can, can you say a little bit about how that touched you? Well, it, it, it touches you not in your mind so much as in your heart. You just feel that these people have found a way to live life with delight and ease. I don't want to romanticize it. Everybody has problems of one sort or another, but you can approach those problems from a place of peace and serenity and joy, or from a place of stress, distress, and anxiety. They come from that other place. They grow up in the extended families, 30, 40, 50 people, aunts, uncles, everyone taking care of them. They have a sense of home inside. They have a sense of uh, selfness. And when they leave home, unlike a Westerner, when we leave home, we leave home homeless. We don't know this deeper self, this place of serenity or peace. We can't find it inside because we've not had the support for that during childhood, although we were born into it. So you could just see that experience and it comes out almost like uh, light waves or energy waves towards you. And you just uh, know that's, that's what I'm looking for. I always think of that movie when Harry met Sally yeah. sitting in that cafeteria and the lady at the other table says, after Sally fakes an orgasm, says, oh, whatever it is that she wants, I want one of them. <laughs> That's the way I, <laughs> I feel. That whatever, one. Yeah. whatever they have, I want one of that. So yeah. it just touches you really deep. It's not the kind of false smiles. It's a kind of just inner delight that you can just feel and kindness, caringness. And what you're saying is what's really coming out again, you know, in all the books that are coming out, the big speakers, I'm thinking of Gabor Matei, all talking about this concept that you just mentioned, that in that lifestyle, they're in their home space, and there's the extended family, and they have the support of the family, so they can deal with the stresses. And, you know, they're living that every day of connection and in love with the family. So they build the resilience inside and they build a way of being in the world that can minimize their reaction to stress of which in the America, we don't do that. So I love how you said, you know, they come home to the self and, and they have that selfness that you can just feel into and you can feel into their light and their love. And, you know, I think so many people are searching for that now, Elliot, that can't find that. And you had that experience a long time ago, which is great. So did that experience then lead you into, you know, this dedication and love you have for meditation? This place of home, of course, is not something you need to build. It's always there, whether we lose it or not. It's always there. It's obscured by the education and training and cultural values we live in. But this place of wholeness and well-being is always there. 
never needs to be created, imagined, or in other words, developed. It needs to be uh, the that which covers it over, the trauma, the teaching we get, the looking outward for gratification. When that begins to recede, then there is a self-revealing of what is already there. And I think that's an important point to make, that everybody, you, me, everybody else right now, this moment has it. And everybody has experienced it in moments of nature, beauty, art, intimacy, music. We get these fleeting moments sometimes, these glimpses of flow, of presence, of connectedness. We just write them off as meaningless moments. But there are moments in which, because of the circumstance, the self, the personal self, which is so obscuring of the deeper self, really stops steps away for a moment. And all of a sudden, there it is. And that's our natural self. That's our natural home. It's always there, even though the veils come over it again. So it's not so much recreating it. It is really revealing it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. It's revealing it. And we're like you said, we're always home, but we get obscured by all that has gone on or continues to. And we don't give ourselves the space or the grace to just be and discover, go within, be with nature and do nothing and allow it to emerge again by going inward. So tell me about your meditation practices. When did you start to meditate? And was it in India? Oh, no, it goes back a lot longer than that. India began late 90s. I had my first experience of meditation very early on and on its introduction into this country by the uh, Maharishi Uttua TM. And I actually went to a program which he was teaching, got a, a mantra and all of that. And that was sort of the beginning of my meditation practices. That shifted fairly rapidly into other meditation practices over the years, different techniques, different methods. What I've come to after all these years is the recognition that meditation actually is quite simple and easy. It's not a struggle. It's not hard. We get into the struggle when we use techniques or methods that get us into this struggle with a busy mind. We're constantly fighting with it as if the thoughts, feelings, and images were unnatural things that we needed to repress or suppress. But if we begin to learn in meditation how to very simply, simply quiet the mind naturally with breathing, the way we'd normally breathe with a little bit of addition to that, and then we learn to just drop right in to this place of presence, which people actually can do quite easily. And when thoughts, feelings, and images come up, we learn to relate to them differently. Mm-hmm. We learn to just let them be and let them go. And we take on the presence of awareness and beingness, just observing, witnessing. Thought comes up, we like it or we don't like it, we don't really care. We don't feed it with attention. And we let things go, they just dissipate by themselves. So we learn how to relate to thoughts, feelings, and images in a very natural way. They're okay. They're there. They come up. Who cares? It's not about me. It's my old history. If it wants to make noise and be annoyed or anxious, let it be. I could watch it and observe it. And if I do that, I'm resting in awareness. And those thoughts, images, and emotions and feelings will rapidly deteriorate and dissolve because their life cycle, unintended to by our interest, is about 200 milliseconds. They're impermanent like everything else. So we learn to do a whole natural process 
without any methods or any techniques that ultimately we get dependent on and just get us into trouble. What I see happening, and, and you say it with such a great flow and with great wisdom, like a it isness. But people, when they are in that meditative state and they're observing the feeling or the, as you say, you know, the history of the mind, they have an emotional reaction to that. And they get stuck in the emotional response and then can emotionally dysregulate. What technique do you advise for people to do when the emotions start rising up so powerfully? Well, to begin, we want to notice how emotions arise as soon as we can. And often they arise in the body before they arise in the mind. The sense of tenseness, the sense of intensity. So when these things arise, whether it's in the mind or in the body, we want to try to observe them. Always observe. There's a strong feeling coming up. So... That's the way I really work with it. It's observing, witnessing. When it becomes too difficult to observe because you're too entangled already, there are other things we can do. One is make a picture or an image of it, place that outside in front of your visual field, close your eyes, begin to observe that. Sometimes it's easy to get the separation with an image placed out front. And if one observes it, keeps on observing it, eventually it shifts, changes, the calmness comes back in. Uh, using breathing techniques when things get really difficult. Just breathe deeper, breathe deeper. The more one practices in practice sessions where one isn't doing it as a result of a first aid treatment, but one is doing it to develop that quality of serenity, the easier it is for it to be there all the time. So it's practice, it's commitment, it's dropping in during the day also with breathing or little remembrances of that place. And slowly but slowly, it begins to become a part of our life. And we begin to be able to observe and witness more easily and get less entangled. When you're really entangled terribly, it's kind of difficult. Take a walk, take a deep breath, wait an hour or two, but go back to practice. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, setting the mind to be intentional about mindfulness and meditation and then taking different times during the day to do a little practice. And as you just say, it could be so simple as I'm feeling some intensity. I may not be meditating in the moment, but with that intensity, I can go outside and just take a brief walk and be with that intensity and breathe with it as a way of just letting it go. So when we talk about meditation, so many people think, oh, it's, you know, sitting formally, you know, in my chair with my straight back. And that's what I have to do to cultivate this space or to really drop inside into home. But it's it's broader than that. It's it's using these little mindfulness practices during your everyday, right? As I hear you. Yes. And also the more you get comfortable with just being with those emotions, anxiety, sadness, anger, whatever feeling is coming up, the more you can just sit with them. Let them be. Don't engage them. Don't have a commentary over them. Just kind of Watch them like a journalist watching an event. In time, they just cease to want to come up the same amount. You see them less, they come up less. There isn't a reaction. There's more of it just simply observing. When this begins to happen, you develop a loss of the fear of one's own mind. Mm -hmm. To not be fearful when an emotion comes up or a thought comes up or a feeling that comes up, which, by the way, does not have a positive or negative sense of itself. Feelings, images, and thoughts do not innately 
are not innately positive or negative. It's how we interpret them or relate to them. So if we don't interpret them or comment on them, they're just neutral occurrences. In fact, they are the product of the five wisdoms in Buddhism. So they could be seen in different light, but as you become comfortable with being with your mind, being with emotions, but not being entangled with them, then they can come up and go and they don't bother you so much. You know, they're perishable. You just wait 20 seconds and they're gone. So we lose the fear of your own mind. And in that is a, is a newly found freedom. Yeah. Yeah. The fear of your own mind or the fear of your emotions. I mean, when you just kind of sit back or when I sit back and think about that, it's really so powerful because I see people afraid to go into their sadness, afraid to go into the grief. What's going to happen if I go there instead of, again, making it, as you said, observing it and allowing that to just be and allowing that to move through you and let it go. It's a practice I think so many people need right now. If you have the feeling that uh, I'm fearful of being with my emotions, watch that feeling. Yeah. I'm fearful of being with my emotions. See where it goes. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if you observe it, it's going to disappear. Yeah. Again, allowing it to arise and noticing and seeing the flow of how it will let go. So when you came back from India and you began to integrate some of these health practices, how to deal with stress, how to meditate, what did you find when you came back into the Western culture? Were people eager to learn from you? Were you weren't, you know, practicing medicine, but I'm sure you were giving health consults. Were people wanting this information, open to it? I think that as it became more accepted in culture meditation, because when I first started teaching it, I had to be very careful about who I taught it to when I was working for a corporation. And then people began to ask uh, and so on. So there has been a cultural mainstreaming of it. Now, unfortunately, the mainstreaming has been of a technique-oriented meditation whose major goal for the country is stress, insomnia, relaxation. So the goals really are very limited. Meditation has two goals, two aims. The first is to upgrade the quality of human life, which is an important thing. That is diminish stress and distress, have more calmness and so on. But that's not really the main goal of meditation. The main goal of meditation is to touch into that place beyond the container of our personality and to be able to understand the nature of our true self, the nature of reality, and to experience with that deepest serenity and happiness and wisdom and freedom that's possible. So the major goal is not to just make life a little easier. You may as well get a massage. It's just easier than going to do meditation. Somebody does it to you. But the goal of it is beyond that. It's to have a richer, richer life, to go beyond the constraints and limitations of our habits and beliefs, standard ways of perceiving experience in the world, including ourself. We can go beyond that. And that's the great gift of meditation, yet when it comes to the West, it's reduced just to stress management and relaxation. And that's a real loss because when you use a technique to achieve that, you have to continue to use the technique. So you go to a yoga session, two days later, you go to another one because the technique stops, its result stops. But as you get to understand the nature of the mind and its fullness, without a technique, you're just watching, observing, you're learning, you're transforming your whole experience naturally, and it's not technique-based. It's not method-based, and therefore it lasts, because it's who you actually are. 
Yeah, again, beautifully said about the two different kind of purposes or intentions of why people meditate. And then, Elliot, often the question I get from people is if they go into the second, if they're meditating with the intention, you know, to connect within, to find their home, to find out the true self and to not get attached to the ego self and go beyond, they often say, well, then how can I do life? I mean, how can I go to work and do my job and raise my family if I'm in this place beyond. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the place beyond is actually our natural self. It's what we're born into. It's a simple, natural awareness. Normally in our daily activities, what underlies our daily activities is the foundation of our ego, our personality, all of its habits and commentary and judgments and perceptions and susceptibility to stress and distress with his self-cherishing and its grasping, that's what underlies our basic experience. We act out of our ego. So we have experiences on the outside. They drop into that place and we react from that place. What happens with meditation is you begin to come closer to your natural self. That natural self slowly and subtly becomes the underlying foundation upon which we relate to the world. So we have a challenge in terms of a person or a circumstance It falls on a foundation of serenity, wisdom, patience, mindfulness, a capacity to be non-reactive. And Mm -hmm. so we are able to actually function better in the world because we have this foundation of meditation and of our natural self underneath us. This develops very subtly over time. It shows up as a reduced reactivity quite soon as more of a calmness less getting sucked into the dramas of the world, other people's and our own. Slowly but surely, we carry out the functions. So we can have an eye. We're born to this human body. We have a personality and ego, but it doesn't have to be who we are. It could be the instrument by which we navigate the world, but underneath that is the essence of who we are, which which characterizes how we respond in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that makes so much more sense. It's so clear. And what a, a way to live. It reminds me of your comment in the beginning of looking at some of the faces of the people in Tibet or Nepal, or India overall, that they are doing life and they're doing their life with a, a quality of presence and knowing of self that is different than the U.S. Yeah. So when you were going through this and you come back, who was your support network? Who were the people that were your community? I know that you were involved with the Institute of Noetic Science, which, by the way, I was a member. I mean, I remember 25, 30 years ago in the 1980s, I was a member of the Institute and loved their journal. It was always full of just great information. And I know I think that which astronaut was the one that started it? Was it Mitchell? Yes. Yeah, remembering that. And so you were involved in that community. And then you were also, you know, on the advisory board of the Journal of an Alternative and Complementary Medicine. Were those kind of hubs for you of professionals that helps, you know, support or were kin to you as you were going through this journey? To some extent, two answers to that question. Once you begin to feel this inside, you're less reliant on outside uh, support, so to say. When you're in the process, it's very helpful, but you have a sense of who you are and what you are, and there's a certain kind of confidence that develops around there, and you really are more self-sufficient in general. Mm-hmm. I did have my Buddhist teachers who I 
would see regularly in, in teachings on a yearly basis. Uh, we're lucky enough to keep in touch with teachers online, on Zoom, and there are many good teachings on online these days. So I'd say that was some support for me, not so much online because it was early then, but going to teachings every year, trying to really develop and cultivate relationships which had the same value system that I did, which is not so easy, but easier now than it was. But then again, you need less. The end of Abraham Maslow's life, he began to change the pyramid of needs, and he added, he didn't add, he added above it, self-transcendence. Well, self-realization was the top level of individual development prior to that. But he, at the end of his life, said there's something beyond that, and that's transcendence, going beyond. And the self-realized person, even that person, he said, was one that had deeper but fewer friendships. So I think support communities are great when they're there. Individuals that share your values are there. It is helpful, but as you begin to grow more inside, you feel connected with everything. And everything yeah. becomes support. I get that because I have periods of time in my life, and it even came out more strongly during COVID, where I'm pretty comfortable being alone. And I'm comfortable sitting around doing nothing. And I may have a weekend that I don't have a lot of social plans, but I feel content with it. And so it's then allowing yourself, in my case, me, allowing myself to just be with that and to let go of any kind of mental thoughts or judgments that I'm not, you know, going out and being with friends and doing this or that, that there's this great peace and this great satisfaction of doing nothing and being by the self. And I found myself really enjoying the isolation of COVID, you know, and people would say, well, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing's wrong with me. What's right with me? I'm really cultivating the inner relationship with self. And it, it feels really wonderful, you know? You know, there's a poem by Mary Oliver called Sunday Morning, and it begins with the word, I don't know exactly what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention, how to fall into the grass, how to kneel into the grass, how to be idle and blessed. And those words, idle and blessed, always struck me. Mm -hmm. How many people are idle and feel blessed at the same time? Most people feel I'm not doing something I should be doing, or anxious, or I need to get up and do something. To be idle and blessed. And I was listening to my teacher, it turns out, the other day, and he had a throwaway comment talking about how we are pushed outside by the cultures offering us outside activities, distractions, entertainments, and other things as a way of filling the homeless void we leave, leave a childhood with, that we get very active around simply trying to fill the void with external things, which never happens because all external things are perishable. So he's just threw out the line and feel comfortable being home. And it struck me the same way as idle and blessed. Mm -hmm. What a joy it is to not have to, I want to travel or I want to do this or I want to do that. If you want to do it, you do it. Mm -hmm. But not as an antidote to an empty inside. Yeah. And so once you have that fullness inside, you can be idle and blessed. You can stroll in the fields as she did, fall into the grass, sit quietly, relate to another. It's all fine. You don't need to do anything else. You have found what the ultimate goal in life is, and now use it as best you can to serve other people. Mm. But it doesn't require this 
economic necessity in the Western world is that we buy everything that can, can amuse us and keep us distracted with a false hope that like alcohol or like drugs, entertainment and distraction is simply there to take away the void inside. Yeah. And that void is not a void if we really touch it deeply. Yeah. That's really powerful, too, of what you just said, is that people often do things because they want to fill the emptiness, but underneath the emptiness or the emptiness is a void that is precious, that is part of our inner discovery, our inner knowing of who we are. Yet sitting with that for so many is so difficult. Yes, it's very hard because uh, in childhood, what happens is that place of fullness, of completeness, of wholeness, the curiosity, the, the awe, the astonishment, the interest of a child is lost. It's taken away. The traumas and how it's taken away by neglect or abuse or more subtle not being present leaves the child with an empty place inside. And then we end up attaching to everything outside because that's what our culture has taught us as a way to avoid feeling that place. Which in, which in essence is who we really are. And it's not void. It's not empty. It's really full. But we have to relearn that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really full. The Mary Oliver poem, what's the title of that one you just recited? I believe it's Sunday, Sunday morning. Sunday morning, which is the other thing I just want to add. You know, whenever I've heard you speak, you know, in person or on YouTube or at a conference, you always recite poems, which is, I always admire that gift in you, that you can just pull something out of your mind and there is the poem. Is there any other poem that just comes as we're talking about awakening, opening up, you know, emptying out the space? Is there any other poem that you can grace us with that comes to mind? Well, I'll try one, but then again, we have to hope that it comes out. Um, <laughs> okay. Dark and cold we may be, but this is not a winter now. The thaw, the flows, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now. The things come up to meet us everywhere until we take the longest stride of soul, exploration into God's self, our divine nature. We have had so many, many thousand years to live, but will we now awake for pity's sake? Mm. That's You might want to look that up because... They're not all Christopher Fry's words. Some of them are mine from a book called The Sleep of Prisoners. Wow. The point is a thousand, thousand years to wake. But will you wake for pity's sake? That's mm -hmm. how it ends. Ah, but will you wake for pity's sake? I like that. So as we're talking about meditation, I just want to go back to one other point about the whole health, wellness, medical. Was there any other philosophy of medicine, of practicing medicine, of health that inspired you from your journeys in the East that you began to cultivate and share with people here in the West about our health and wellness in addition to the meditation? Was there any other insight that you had or awakening you had about the healthcare system that they have over there in contrast to what we have here? Well, I don't want to romanticize what they have there. They have gained the inside and the health and the well-being associated with it. But at the same time, they've not invested so much in the externalities. So certainly if we wanted medical science or sophisticated medical interventions, we would have to be here in the West rather than the East. It's a balance to have both and to infuse 
science into both and spirit into both. There have been many individuals who have touched me in this path. One of them I think of is Dr. Bernard Lown, died a few years ago. I met him the first time on rounds in the cardiac care unit as a resident in Boston. And he had invented the defibrillator and he had started the first coronary care unit in the world, the Peter Ben Brigham Hospital, now Brigham and Women's Hospital. I remember him saying on that round, I've never seen somebody here with a heart attack or wasn't depressed within the last 18 months. I thought that was pretty astounding for a great scientist. I started following him around. And about five years later, I found out that he won the Nobel Peace Prize in association with a Russian physician for a group called the International Physicians Against Nuclear War. So you meet people like this who are great humanists, as well as being great scientists. And I was fortunate to do my residency at Harvard, where there were very many people brilliant in both areas. And when you meet this kind of meeting of humanism with science, it's a a really remarkable thing. Now, there are people who developed models that were more advanced. Uh, George Engel, E-N-G-E-L, psychosocial spiritual model. John Travis, the wellness model originally. And others, the developmental psychologists, Maslow, Erickson, Carl Rogers, who developed models that looked at development. So there are a number of different sources, I think, that fed into what I felt. And I must say, I came back appreciating Western medicine as much or more than I did before. It's a wonderful medicine that we'll also use some days. The problem is it's limited to that single biological aspect. But it does that very well, and sometimes that's what we need. So I was not disillusioned by Western medicine, but simply sourced great traditions in the Asclepian healing centers of ancient Greece and what it was missing and trying to bring those together so that there can be a process of whole healing. It's difficult to do what I did and practice great science and keep up with it at the same time. They're two major occupations. And so it may be that we need to simply learn how to work in teams or integrate back and forth because it's very difficult to keep up with medical science and being a practitioner and do what I do, which is take time off. So I admire them for staying in their roles and helping people, but it is limited. They suffer also. Mm-hmm. The burnout rate and the suicide rate in physicians is quite high. Yeah, yeah. So what I hear you saying then, if I'm clear, is that that experience in India, perhaps you brought back more of a whole person approach in a different way with appreciation for both the East and the West and really integrating it together to look at mind, body, spirit. And as one of your, you know, your mentors just said at the hospital, his humanness and his science and his actually brilliance and courage to say, yeah, I'm looking at the fact that people that have had these heart attacks or strokes, they have had a history of depression a few years prior to that, that it, it brought some kind of awareness or awakening of the value and the depth of the whole person model. And then people that are integrating that or were that you became more aware of, just like what you said with Maslow. And I remember how transpersonal psychology came out, you know, and that was the thing that you know, Maslow was a part of that movement of looking at the soulfulness in psychology and going into those depths where, you know, traditional psychologists or psychiatrists would have nothing to do with that. So there was more of that opening or looking or being aware of or noticing 
the healthcare psychology models. Yes, I think that's true. There has been certainly much more of that of late, and hopefully it, it continues for everyone involved. Yeah. And if I remember, wasn't it Dean Ornish was the one that wrote the book that really correlated men having heart attacks with grief? I'm forgetting the the book that he wrote that he looked at that research that you know your doctor friend had begun to look at. Yeah, he was uh, one of the early ones in terms of looking in terms of heart disease at uh, a holistic way of treating it. Yeah. 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 So he worked with nutrition, with psychology, and with the physical elements of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. As we're beginning to come to a close, is there anything else you really want to share to our listeners about either, you know, wellness or meditation or living life or being alive and awakening? Anything else that you would like to share from your wisdom bank? Well, I would like to share, and it's not a way of promoting, but it's something I feel strongly about, my new book, Meditation and Beyond, which is on Amazon. I'd like to share that because it is a precious uh, series for me of 29 essays that are very simple and clear, uh, hooked into an audio training program that really bring forth these two aims of meditation in a very sweet easy and almost poetic way. I think it's a wonderful way to get inspired and to be, to begin. So I just wanted to bring that to attention because I think it's, it's valuable. Also that for each one of us, this place of wholeness and well-being that cannot be touched by life circumstances, either even aging, disease, and death, this inner place of well-being, of wholeness, of, of serenity, of wisdom, this is there for all of us all the time right here, right now. All we have to do is move away the veils, the belief that we are this personal mind, that we are these thoughts, that we are these feelings, that this is something we acquired after we met people. It's not what we came out of the womb with. So we can really, really reorient ourselves towards this inner self. With a little help and a little assistance, we will find the golden thread there that will weave into our life in a rich way. And it's there in everybody at every moment. And it's particularly accessible at the most difficult moments because that's when we become most vulnerable, most open, and the walls break down a bit. So I leave you with the metaphor of a cup. If we have a cup, even with our spiritual practices we do in this world, the most we can do is explore the inner space of the cup. But as we break down the walls of the cup, which can be seen in our ego structure or even our body at the time of Life comes to an end. As we break down the containing structure, the inner space becomes mixed with the vast outer space. We begin to find the wholeness and connection that we've sought in our life. So we, during a lifetime, try to break down this ego structure a little bit. Don't believe so much that's who I am. Don't believe in its habits and its perspectives and its beliefs. Trust the inside wisdom, the silence that comes in the silence that comes in the wisdom and the wisdom that comes in silence. And it's there that we find who and what we are. And when we find that, we'll have to search for no more. The seeker will burn up, and the searching will end, and life will be lived according to its natural nature. So let me leave it there. That was so beautiful. It sounded like a poem that you were just, you know, that was organically just emerging. That was beautiful, Elliot. And I look forward to reading your new book. And one other question about it. You said 29 essays. How long did it take you to put this all together? 
Well, some of it was written a little earlier. Some of it was written in an ongoing way over the last few years. And some of it was written new. So there were a lot of blogs that I wrote that I really, really liked. And they got just kind of one showing. And I wanted to preserve them and organize them with new material to try to express the wholeness and the richness that's in all of us and the way of uh, of accessing that without difficult techniques or methods. So they did all fall together on the four headings, vision practices, human flourishing and beyond mm. to form a cohesive, really kind of simple but sweet introduction to this material. Mm. So it was rather, rather easy, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. And on my webpage, I'm going to have a photo of you and how to contact you with it and a short bio. But can you tell our listeners now how they could get a hold of you? You're on Inside Timer. You're on LinkedIn. And how else can people get a hold of you? Well, my website is www.myname.org. And most of the things I do there are there, including a Sunday morning Zoom session we've been doing for three years now, which is a little teaching and meditation. It's free for anybody who wants to come. If they go on my website, they can then find the sign-up sheet for my email and they'll get an informational flyer every week. So I think my webpage is probably the place to, to meet everything, www.elliottdacher.org. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with us today. My pleasure. And goodbye, Susan and Suzanne. Thank your visitors for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you again. So let's take a pause for a moment and take that deep breath with all the information that Elliot just shared and really, you know, drink in the wisdom, drink in the experience of what he has shared. And to know that when we talk about our health and we talk about our well-being, that we each have the capacity to drop into a space inside and to cultivate more of a mindset, more of a presence, more of a state of being in health and being in wellness, and more importantly, to drop home into getting to know ourselves in the true organic way of who we are. So as you travel this path, may your humanness flourish and may you be all that you are meant to be from within. May you be healthy and well. May you be happy. May you meet kindness at every turn of the road. Thank you. And I am Suzanne. There's a place of calm, there's a place of peace, it is within. There's a place of joy, there's a place of love, it is within.